listen to them. Children of the night. What music they make. Welcome back to Scored to Death, the podcast, the official companion podcast to the book Scored to Death, Conversations with Some of Horror's Greatest Composers. My name is Jay Blake Fischera, and the book is available from Silman James Press. It features 14 in-depth interviews with renowned film music composers that have made significant contributions to horror and have worked with some of the genre's greatest filmmakers. It is available on Amazon and from other book retailers. The goal of both the book and this podcast is to explore the craft of film scoring and celebrate the amazing composers that do it. Today's episode is part one of a detailed discussion with the French composer who professionally goes by the name Rob. He burst onto the horror film music scene with a fantastic early example of retro synthwave scoring, the 2012 Frank Calfoon and Alexandre Aja remake of Maniac and he has since worked on numerous films and television shows from all over the world, including Alexandre Aja's Horns, the Natalie Portman period fantasy drama Planetarium, Amityville, The Awakening, the more recent French horror thriller Revenge, and Alexandre Aja's virtual reality horror experience, Campfire Creepers. We've got a lot to get to, so let's get started. This is the first episode where we're recording live. Like, we're together... Okay, hopefully we go <laughs> fine. Today I'm with Rob, and Rob flew all the way here from France just to do this interview. Of course, especially <laughs> for you. It's and, a real pleasure. And we're sitting atop Christie Street in uh, the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Rob, thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. I know you're you're really busy. First question is. Why just the first name? Why just Rob as kind of your musical handle? So my, my full name is Robin Couder, Robin Couder, as we say in a, with a French accent. And it just appeared that it, it's, this is how my friends called me, Rob. And so when the, for the first time a record company asked me, okay, so what should we put on your record? I, I didn't really think of it. Like maybe if I had... I would have put out something a bit <laughs> more sophisticated, I don't know. But it, it just it felt natural like to be called as my friend called me. When did you realize that music was your calling? When did you really get into music and decide that you wanted to start playing it and creating it? I would say as far as I remember. I have very you know blurry memories from my childhood. So I was probably even before five when I started to play with little keyboards toy or I remember I was really into a decomposing electronic instrument like I would take a screwdriver and yeah. take everything apart and play with the the, yeah. the little parts so that was my first contact with music was really from an electronic aspect sort of fascination for the object sure that I still have and Obviously, today I like to play with things and not destroy it, but yeah. uh, it's a bit the same concept in a way. I wonder if that's like a creative thing for kids, kids that are creative. Cause I, like I, to destroy? You not mean? destroy, but like take apart. 
yeah, and try to I, see like what's going on yeah, inside. I guess it's part of the curiosity, very simply, just to know like what's inside, <laughs> like what's inside the box. <laughs> yeah, if yeah. you're curious, that's what you want to know. What's making it do that? Yeah. And so this is my first really like really childhood memories, and then I started to play trumpet because uh, I had no special affection for this instrument, but um, it was the first instrument you could start with without doing any study before. Because my dream was to play saxophone. Don't ask <laughs> me why. It was yeah, like yeah. a child fantasy. And you had to start with theory for a year before you can play saxophone. So trumpet, I guess it's because it's uh, such a hard instrument to play. They wanted the kids to start like as soon as they can to play it. It's like, quite a shitty instrument. <laughs> to me, it's really, this, is, this has like yeah, tough memories because I was eight years old. And I was a bit, you know, uh, like skinny kind of kid, a bit like uh, <laughs> not in a great shape, I would say. And yeah. so it was extremely painful for me to blow in a trumpet. And uh, eventually I, uh, as you say, I fainted. I faint. I like, passed out. Yeah, I passed fainted. out before my third, uh, I had to pass a test, you know, every year. And the third year I, I passed out just blowing in too much in that thing too much so it was obviously quite a trauma like to pass out doing music it's not exactly what i expected at this age yeah. even though today i experienced that kind of thing too but <laughs> i enjoy it now <laughs> well, it wasn't, that, I look wasn't for it now. it's not as traumatic now <laughs> yeah. as it was then uh, so uh, my parents thanks to them uh, decided to help me stop this uh, torture and they offered me a synthesizer, which was a very determinant. Around what age was that? So probably 10 or 11. And uh, why a synthesizer? Because I couldn't afford and I hadn't uh, had the room for a real piano. So it seemed like a, like a reasonable option. To have sure. A, maybe it's just luck, but they chose a synthesizer that had MIDI input and output. Mm -hmm. And it happened that I also had an Atari ST at this time, which was the first computer, including a MIDI interface. Yeah. So I started to really explore electronic music at that age, so around 10, with just playing video games with MIDI interface. And I had MIDI files from uh, Beethoven, Bach, Mozart. And I, I just, I was playing with MIDI files, so just putting some parts in loop and uh, or reversed or changing the notes yeah, yeah. and playing this with my synthesizer. So when I was 10 years old, we have to understand that it was 1988 or so. And at this time, a guy like Jean-Michel Jarre was quite big in France and in the world, actually. So I was really the kid, like a bit fascinated by this era, by this genre in music. So to own a synthesizer at that age and to be able to do some electronic music was really something that that blew my mind. Yeah. So that's really I would say the the like the the starting point of a really passionate relationship towards electronic music. So there was like a little bit of fate going on, kind of. Yeah, kind <laughs> of. I, I don't know if it's luck or fate or magic. Maybe it was just something very intuitive and instinctive to go towards that kind of thing, because. Yeah, I could have done something else with this piano. I could have went towards, I don't know, like jazz or maybe blues or played ragtime or some yeah. kids do that. 
But no, I was more into not even playing actually, but make my synthesizer play alone with the computer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that was good. And then I started to listen to my older brother records. My brother Ben, who's a great collector, of, he has a great shop in Paris called La Dame Blanche. So he's really a specialist now. But yeah. at this time, he was already really into. He was a how do you call it a digger, sure, vinyl yeah. digger. And so I started to listen to like heavy metal stuff, but not the mainstream things, and not Metallica, but more like I started with Deep Purple, then Led Zeppelin, that Black Sabbath, and he was also into stuff like Christian Death or like weird, uh, weirder stuff. Sure, yeah. Uh, so when you were 12, 13, that kind of music really takes you by the guts. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's what happened to me. It's a, it's a similar trajectory to me. I think people that uh, we're the same age and I have an older brother also. And I think at least for males, at least from young men, I think even more than we realize, we're probably influenced by our older siblings because one, we get a lot of hand-me-down stuff, hand-me-down toys, the hand-me-down clothes. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> you know, like we get all the recycled stuff. But then it's like we're too young to buy our own music mm-hmm. uh, and so we end up listening to our Yeah, bro- our you have to deal with what's around you in the, in our the house. Our older brother's yeah, music. Yeah. So growing up for me, it was, uh, my brother was in the 80s, was very into Van Halen mm-hmm. and so there was that and, and then when I was in high school, I got very into Black Sabbath and so throughout your teen years, was it still like this hard rock stuff or did when did when did you start kind of expanding your musical vocabulary in terms I mean, of the my, stuff my own my own thing uh, it took me like just a little time to start my own band starting from this heavy metal hard rock uh, basis so uh, it was called insane and i started as the we called it the manager of the band <laughs> and uh, so at this time it meant uh, i was in charge of the lights the light during the rehearsal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's a very nice conception of the, 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 the management it. thing. <laughs> but it just allowed me now, I mean, uh, from my adult's point of view, just it allowed me to sit in front of a band and realize what's good, what's bad, and sort of have a, you know what I mean, a distance, yeah, yeah. like sort of a producer distance. Sure. Uh, towards music, so that's how I analyze this now. Obviously, it wasn't the case at that time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I, so I started to, in a way, be interested in production, in uh, how how I should advise the guys. Or oh, maybe you should uh, stand there, or maybe you should play a bit louder, or maybe you know, even the mixing. So that's that. that was this at this time was insane. Then I. Step by step, I became uh, the second singer of the band, and also the keyboard player. But it's there are just a few keyboard parts in that kind of music, so I wasn't, except uh, like Stairway to Heaven with the Mellotron or <laughs> yeah, you know yeah. No Quarter, that kind of song. Uh, the rest was a bit uh, hard. So I went more and more into Deep Purple because I was fascinated mm-hmm. by John Lord, uh, who I still consider as a Almost a guru, I would say, because yeah. I, I really, I still dig his style, his sound, and the way he includes classical music, but distorted. I think it's really cool. So I started to study his playing a bit more, 
and I studied also to work with a teacher, personal teacher, a keyboard teacher. Yeah. And he told me he was wrong, but it was a good thing. Oh, you're into John Lord. Then you should buy a Fender Rhodes, which was obviously completely wrong because uh, John Lord plays the Hammond. <laughs> yeah. But it's a good thing because first, uh, I can't imagine going back home with uh, an organ on my back. <laughs> <laughs> Though that uh, Fender Rhodes is quite heavy too, but then anyway, I I bought a Fender Rhodes under his advice, and I discovered this beautiful instrument, and I discovered that this was actually the sound of so many songs, so many tunes we sure, could listen yeah. to, and it gave me uh, uh, another taste of uh, you know the love I have for gears. Uh, as especially like the gears from our childhood so the today we call it the vintage but at this time yeah. it was just the stuff you could <laughs> buy yeah so with my first synthesizer that i still had at this time and this fender Rhodes, it started to be sort of a, a combo you know like um, an instrumentarium can you say that in english it's a latin word that means just like the instrument that are used in your sure, yeah. in your environment and it was just going a bit further down into the production thing and how it sounds so i could even uh, add some effects on the fender road some pedals some stuff some wah wah blah 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 yeah and it led me to jazz funk or more experimental stuff my brother um, introduced me to uh, stuff like uh, Mahavishnu Orchestra or bad things like Weather Report or you know, like <laughs> things that I don't really like anymore. But quite interesting in terms of just to extend your uh, your vision, like your the, and also the the way of playing the all the instruments that are used. And I eventually started another band, a uh, funk band this time. First it was just funk, then it went slightly to P-Funk, step by step, because I was then 16, 17, and we were into more partying and drugs and <laughs> yeah. uh, sex and uh, well, just having fun. So P-Funk was... Uh, just uh, funk wasn't going to do it Funk is already a good start, and then P-Funk <laughs> it's even, <laughs> even more fun, I would say. So we were 12, I think, yeah, the, we were 12 on stage at, uh, at this time. So it was sort of a big band. Uh, it was obviously a lot of fun, sure. And it also showed me how to construct a song, how to arrange it a bit. So two guitars, one synthesizer, some horns, some percussions. Sure, yeah. So it was also the beginning of the another aspect of music, like really ar arrangement aspect. So that was very interesting for this. I was sort of the, not the leader, we was, the guitar player and I, we were sort of uh, yeah, co-leaders co co of the thing. And it was, I have to say, um, a very heavy duty at this time because all the other guys were really like more into fun and into sure, just yeah. play gigs and uh, get some chicks uh, more than this, than to like uh, really compose music and be serious about it. But it was, it was really cool. I was dating the, the lead singer. So I didn't have to seduce her. <laughs> so I could focus on the music. And yeah, that was a very good experience too. I think everybody considers themselves at least a little bit of a fan of film, of cinema. But at any point, were you into some of the film music that was going on? When did you, did, 
Did you ever get into film music or did you just kind of fall into it? Well, actually, all I said was about music, but in sort of a parallel uh, vision, I was extremely into cinema and into... I, I, I didn't identify at this time that it, it was a score because I, I didn't make any difference between the movie and the music. To me, it was just one yeah. piece. But I was really fascinated by very strong movie where the music was extremely obvious and powerful but I didn't realize that music was a big part of the movie at this time but yeah. now I know like I could watch the mission you know the film mission sure yeah I could watch this movie like every day and I was really fascinated by the story of course but also the music And I still consider this score as a, like a beautiful uh, piece. It's um, Ennio Morricone. Yeah, yeah, Ennio Morricone. Uh, though it's not extremely, like it's not a typical Morricone score. That's not the one you would quote first. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was no, the a, one I. Uh, it's a great to. score, and I think yeah. it definitely has its fans. I mean, there's people yeah. that are very fanatical about that movie and that, yeah. and specifically that score. And I remember especially uh, a sequence in that movie where there's a sort of a indigenous choir with kids singing. And the melody they sing in this movie keeps like keeps running in my head like every, every time even though i have to compose something <laughs> yeah it's it's it just <laughs> it crosses my mind because i you know that's how it is with childhood traumas yeah it just it, it stays there in your mind forever so this movie is part of it and also i remember watching in english you call it the fearless vampire killers roman polanski yeah the polanski film yeah, yeah. And this one was also like a, a like a huge part of my child inspiration, uh, and the music is so beautiful in there. The Christophe Comeda music. Sort of a subcarpatic. Uh, harpsichord uh, female vocals very vampirish but also with a lot of humor and, sure. and this music is also always in my mind even something I quote musically without noticing <laughs> yeah. and after I'm like oh shoot this music <laughs> exists already <laughs> but that this is how it is I guess inspiration works like this so these movies, I, I, I think I could watch them like almost every day or every week in, during my childhood. Even though I was maybe six or seven, this, this was a great era of uh, VHS. So it was. We were very lucky in that we grew up as part. I, I call oh, us, yeah. I call our, our generation the the video store generation. Yeah, we were sure. Kind of the first generation of children that had access to be able to rewatch things over and over again you know before that all you had was if you got it on television or if you bought the novelizations yeah. and to listen to the score those are like the only ways you and then in the late 70s it became kind of popular and even before that some people would watch by like the shortened eight millimeter yeah yeah the films yeah, films. yeah. I, I had this at home too. yeah they watch like, like the, and, uh, watch like the five minute version of star wars yeah yeah yeah, yeah exactly yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, but it's true that uh, the, we are lucky because this this was the first time that you could have like a really nerd relationship with movie because you could own the movie. Yeah, you could have the object. You could you could actually like carry it on with you. <laughs> And it's you can something take it to somebody's house. And yeah, watch yeah, yeah, it exactly. Too. And plus, it's true to say that the, the 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 object, the VHS, the tape, it's it was really cool. I mean, you had the cover, you had the back cover with yeah. just little pictures. Yeah. It was really you could own the movie and take it with you, as you said. So, uh, it's for sure it created um, well, like it created a, a, like a it created like a record, like a record. Yeah, well, mentality mm-hmm. to movies, like you said, like the cover. You could read the description. I went, I went to film school, and I did a lot of uh, actual shooting. The cinematographer, when I was when I was in film school, I, did, I shot a lot of people's films, and they would ask, like, how does it look? Because we were shooting film, so there was no monitors. It was just like yeah. the eyepiece, yeah. and they'd be, how do, how does it look? And I was like, oh, it looks like back of the box, <laughs> meaning like it look. This frame is this. If you were going to make this a VHS tape, mm-hmm. this would be the one on the back of the box or side of the box. This was <laughs> yeah, <even laughs> like the, this is the this is the frame that would be on the side of the yeah. box to sell the movie. <laughs> And so yeah, it was like it was tangible. You had the art they were using, still using the DVD arts now. Sometimes are I don't know why they redo them, but we had beautiful art and even some of the horror films like Black Roses. When you went in the VHS store, it would be raised yeah, like you had like yeah. gimmicky boxes. Yeah. It was like it's, it's, it's interesting that you you mentioned this little picture like on the side of <laughs> because it's it's we have to realize that this very picture, this very little one. It had a huge importance on sure, us, yeah. on our ger- generation, because that that was what we f- that was our first look on the movie. <laughs> it was often and, just the spine of the and side, especially of it, yeah. when it came to the horror movie uh, district in the store. This picture had a, like it's crazy the influence it had on on me. At yeah, least. yeah. Because I I was a kid, so I wasn't really allowed to go in that in that section. <laughs> sure the is. only thing I could have was just this this, this <laughs> vision of the that movie. little you could the f- whatever font was ri- it was written yeah, in, which yeah, early yeah. on was just usually a white font, but then it started to get more stylized. But you could see like the title, and then there was always just a little tiny frame that was like like you said, it was the only representation yeah. we have of what that movie was about. <laughs> so that, that's why I think the guys like us. The relationship we have towards genre movie and horror movies is is so passionate and so yeah. there's sort of a in, great intimacy with between us and this this kind of movies because it was from the childhood like this this vibe is very tiny is very subtle you know what I mean yeah. it's something that it's hard to describe it's really something like you like it's like a pin on your brain. <laughs> You know, when you're yeah. a kid, when you're six, everything you see, everything you sure. hear, everything you, yeah. everything has a huge importance. And that kind of thing, to have a shock picture like this, yeah. to have the reanimator, like just the, a screenshot of this when you're six, it's really like, <gasps> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you have the feeling that there's a, a huge world behind this cover, behind this VHS, that you are not allowed to access. And that it, that is something like, Greater, like to, yeah. I don't know how to describe. It's really something. <laughs> well, even very to the, even to this day, when I'm talking to somebody and they're like, "Oh, have you seen so and so movie? Have you seen this movie?" And it, it being an older film, I'd be like, "I know, I've never seen it, but I know the box." 
Like I, I've seen, like I know, I can picture the way yeah. it looks in the video store, <laughs> but I've never seen yeah. it. So it really has like made it, that's like it imprinted itself on our brains for sure. And again, my older brother had a huge importance on me because he had the access to this VHS because he was eight years older than me. So he, he could just go to the to the store and take whatever he wanted <laughs> and take it back home. And so I could just hear some noises from the from the room uh, yeah. next, next to mine. And also he was, so I had quite a dark brother, as you understand now. <laughs> well, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. he was listening to some hard and rock he, and metal. He, he, he was actually really in love with that kind of movie. So he even like, he, he used to buy the posters and mm-hmm. would put it in his room. So he had, his room was like a very mysterious and dark world I to me. I have a cousin that's like yeah. that. And he, he smoked a lot of uh, hashish. And with the, the, all the West Cravens posters everywhere, <laughs> listening to Christian Death. Sure. So he was, you know, when you're yeah, like yeah. a pre-teenager kid, to have an older brother like this, it's really like, wow. I had an older cousin. My brother's like five years older than me. But then I had a cousin that's probably more of that difference, a little bit older than my brother. And when I would go over to my aunt's house... His room had he had put like a pad he had put like a lock like a deadbolt on oh, his yeah. room like his, and he only he had the key mm-hmm. but sometimes it would be open and I would walk in and he not so much movie posters but it would be like Ozzy Bark at the Moon you know uh, all kinds of heavy metal posters and Ozzy with blood coming out of his mouth and all this stuff and it was like yeah, it was beautiful. crazy it's beautiful <laughs> it captured the imagination of a little yeah. kid yeah exactly the feeling of entering into a cave. Uh, with forbidden artifacts that was very interesting and plus he was a, a an artist in a way he was a, he loves to to draw to paint and to even do sculpture but you could tell he was really under the influence of uh, chemicals <laughs> so he did just weird stuff so his room was really like a, a strange mix of a museum uh, horror like really a weird cave sure so yeah. just to go there when he wasn't there and to discover some some yeah mysterious aspect of something that I was sure. not allowed to to discover. It had also a great influence on me. Now you were interviewed for a French documentary about John Carpenter. Mm-hmm. Not speaking French, I turned it on and I I didn't know what you were saying. So I don't. So these questions are in reference to like, was he ever like an influence on you? Like what what? kind of things would you have talked about in, in that documentary like were you interested in his films when you were growing up or did you discover his stuff later no no it's he's uh, the perfect example of what we're talking about like the kind of movie i would first discover on the cover sure, in yeah. the store and then uh, see some artifacts in my brother's room and then eventually watch the movie so i think halloween was the first one i i could watch <laughs> I think it's a good start yeah. uh, for Carpenter's work. Probably a lot of people's first uh, yeah, yeah. Carpenter film. And I was probably too young, like um, like most of the experience I had in my life, I would say I, I was a bit, a bit young because I was the, the youngest of the four, four siblings. So that's why probably I went into different experiences a bit early. So I think I watched Halloween when I was probably 12. And it's also it's the perfect age because <laughs> you get it in your face. You're yeah, like, oh, yeah. fuck. <laughs> so it, that's what happened to me. I was literally like, I was like, f- 
frozen i was like it it, it, yeah, it was yeah. extremely a uh, very intense experience and obviously again the music just blew my mind but without noticing so it it's i think it's really it may be not my favorite from carpenter but i think it is best it's a real masterpiece even from a composer point of view i mean it's 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 perfect it's really yeah. perfect it's so so simple and crazy and i love the way he included the influence of uh, mini minimalistic you say that sure minimal yeah. music or well, you know what i mean Like to put this into a horror movie, that's so cool. That's so clever. Yeah. Well, he is kind of the master of minimalism. I interviewed him for the book, yeah. but I also interviewed Claudio Simonetti from the band Goblin, uh-huh. and we talked about the Carpenter. And he said, with Carpenter, it's like you can hear one note, and you you know it's Carpenter, and it's like more effective than any note you even if you played the same note it like wouldn't have the same resonance yeah, 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 <laughs> as if he played it you said halloween is not your favorite do you have a favorite uh maybe maybe uh new york in 1987 yeah yeah uh, escape from one. new york here. yeah oh yeah yeah that's oh yeah sorry that's no, how that's we okay. call it in french yeah, yeah we have a lot of weird translation in uh, yeah, that yeah. Kind of movie anyway yeah and also the again the the even behind the notes and the composition just the production of the music like it 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 left a, a huge print in my mind The use of sequencers and synthesizers sure. and drum machines. What I love with all this period in my life is that everything happened like without me doing anything. Yeah. That's why that that's what's so great in childhood. Like you just have to let yourself go and just be with the good person, I guess. <laughs> so you have to be a bit lucky. But it's just everything uh, goes inside you without without doing anything so if you meet John Carpenter when you're 12 it's just it's perfect it's just, uh, <laughs> he it is, gives you the right keys are kind of the perfect mm. at least I you know I can only speak from my experience but for like a young male like his movies are kind of perfect for you know 12 to 15 16 you got like because they're cool like Escape from New York is cool Big Trouble in a Lot of China it's probably very cool it's probably like the coolest movie ever yeah yeah sure yeah Yeah. (laughs) there's nothing about that movie that's just not cool and then you get the horror stuff even Christine you know had a huge impact on me growing growing up yeah yeah so throughout your teens you kept playing music and then uh into the late 90s you started to have uh some success i wouldn't say that i i like to think that i've never been i've never been successful and i like this idea because i think being successful it wouldn't be helpful to me because where i am right now uh, i can be really myself I don't have any uh, commercial pressure of any kind. I do really what I want to do. 
and the, the, the directors or the musicians coming to me are just interested in what I do for real. Not, you know what I mean? It's not like I did a big hit yeah, and now yeah, everyone's yeah. coming to me. Okay, I want to do the same. But, but, there's, but there are plenty of people who play music through their teens and stuff and never get out of playing cover songs in local bars. You know, at least you started to record some of the stuff. Oh, got yeah. Released, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, success in that way. Oh, success in that way. You yeah, know, like, yeah, just yeah. Just like the next, the next professional step. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're right. Uh, yeah, so it happened. Actually, I I didn't intend to be a professional musician at this time. I studied uh, painting and uh, engrave, engraving, I you say that. I was in a fine art school in Paris. So I I was I was sure I wanted to be an artist, but not sure about what exactly. And uh so I went into so fine arts and I really loved that. I was studying with a um, a master called Vladimir Velikovic who was a very tortured Serbian artist, uh, very influenced by uh like Francis Bacon and stuff like this. So he did really like a bit hardcore paintings with a big crucifixions and uh, blood and yeah now when i say this uh, <laughs> i have the feeling that my whole life has been like conducted kind of by with the, with the weirdos kind of in the world <laughs> but i was actually a happy kid uh, during all this time and a happy teenager often the people that are into things like horror movies and heavy metal are yeah, happy, happy. yeah know? it's true it's yeah. like a it's, a it's a weird outlet that other people don't have you yeah, know it's, it's yeah. um, there's more depression in mainstream probably <laughs> yeah it's it's right actually Anyway, so I was in that uh, in that school, and I had some uh, medical issues, some lung issues. So I had to quit everything for a while. I went to the hospital, got surgery, and uh, it sort of made me realize that, you know, the kind of thing you want to realize when you're 18. That okay, life is short, and maybe once again, 18 is a bit early to to think of this. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, that's my life. And so I I quit my girlfriend and I started to focus on what I really want to do and uh, who I want to be and try to be a good person and really connected to your uh, deep inner feelings. So I eventually quit this school where I was uh, quite miserable because uh, I didn't feel like I didn't feel very comfortable surrounded by Serbian artists <laughs> and uh, I but I had I had still my band uh, and I studied also to have a little home studio so I thought that maybe I should give a chance to that part of my my interests yeah and I started to focus on the music like just 24 hours a friend of mine just gave me an apartment, a big apartment next to Paris. And I started to just compose music day and night for a year and a half. Yeah. And it's when I met my first record company called Source, uh, who I was introduced to by my friends from Phoenix. Sure. They were signed on this label. And they told me, you should meet those guys there. A guy called Marc Tessier-Ducrot. He signed also Sébastien Tellier. Uh, Air, uh, well, that kind of people. Yeah, and I started to understand that I sort of, yeah, I belong to that, that that branch at this time, and I just kept, I was obsessed with producing music, and I started doing only this. So it was a very interesting period in my life. 
because it's the first time I really did only one thing. And, uh, you know, so being uh, 18, 19, and doing like constantly music, being very poor, but you don't care this time. And like, yeah, I had yeah. no family, nothing to take care of. Just I could eat pasta or not even <laughs> pasta, maybe to eat a glass of water and uh, just smoking pot and yeah, doing yeah, music yeah. All, all the time. And they eventually, the artistic director of this label started to think, okay, this guy is, is really into it. We, sh we should maybe talk about it. And he really pushed me to like he was really encouraging and saying okay this is great shoot do more do more do more and he was a great guy Marc Tessier Ducrot he really managed to give me some uh, self-confidence and to like to persuade me that I, I was able to do this yeah uh, so I had a eight track tape uh, recorder very nice uh, thing yeah and I did like uh, I don't know maybe 40 or 50 tracks and we picked 20 of them and we we went to a professional studio to record so that was my first big step in the real world of uh, yeah. production uh, I was very influenced by the 70s French producer at this time uh, you know the great Serge Gainsbourg albums like uh, Melody Nelson like uh, L'homme à tête de chou mm -hmm. like uh, voilà. this is our this very arty poetry slash experimental slash pop music yeah the kind of music they would do in France in the 70s and it's what I loved is that it was really a mix between like 70s pop music so a lot of Fender Rhodes synthesizer the electric bass played with a, you know the muffled sound but also with an input of classical music and the weird arrangement with strings and horns yeah so something a bit experimental and very romantic and That's when I realized also that my music was very romantic. I always wanted to put some emotion, some feelings, some whatever it can be. It can be sadness, melancholy, or love, or yeah. I don't know, but something uh, related to emotion. I'm not a great dance music producer, for sure. <laughs> That's not the music I, I yeah, can provide. Yeah. It's, whenever I try, it's a, it's a disaster. But... When it comes to just being emotional, that's why I feel really comfortable. And so that's what I did. And uh, we recorded my first record then called Don't Kill. And when did the idea or the opportunity present itself for recording music for film? It was a bit later, maybe two years after. So in 2002 or three, when I met my, uh, well, at this time, she was just my girlfriend, but she eventually became my wife. And she was uh, uh, in a director school in Paris. So I started to hang out with uh, directors and DOPs and uh, like script doctors and <laughs> those kind of people. 
And she asked me to, because I was a musician, she knew it, of course. She went to my show, she, uh, and she asked me to score her first short movie for the, the it was a, like a school study. I sure, think, yeah. yeah. And I just, it felt so natural to me, and it, it was very obvious that it worked very well, that my music on pictures was just, okay, it was a perfect match. Yeah. Because uh, I was very into... It, though I recorded uh, like this Don't Kill, I was already into instrumental music. It's the time where Air released Moon Safari. So it was a big step into, you know, a mix between instrumental and pop music. It was the first time in the two Ks that the, 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 there was a audience interest for uh, instrumental music not related to dance music. Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. It wasn't house music. It was pop, but instrumental. And to me, it's re it really opened the door to what I really wanted to do, to record. Because it's quite experimental to think that you can release a record of pop instrumental. <laughs> it's a bit okay, but yeah. so what's the point? <laughs> yeah, but yeah. yeah, there's a point. And it goes so well towards score. It's, it, it is like, it's kind of a soundtrack, pop instrumental. So the, this first short movie was called Pink Cowboy Boots. I even played a little uh, part in it. And it was my first experience. It was very unprofessional at this time because I didn't know how even how to lock the music on the picture. I didn't have like a real Pro Tool stuff at this time. So it was more I composed the song <laughs> and the editor had to work with it. Sure. But it was it was sort of a success in our like in our posse. I don't know how to say. Uh, like everyone really noticed that it was a great a great score actually so I did the second one for her and then I met some friends of her like Rebecca Zlotowski or Teddy Modest who asked me to score their first feature when they just went out of school and this is how I scored Belle Epine and all the rest Okay, I know it seems like we're just getting into his film scoring career, but that's about the midway point and a good place to stop for now. I, of course, need to thank Rob for being part of the show. What you just listened to is only part one of an extensive interview. If you'd like to check out part two, with all new updates and bonus material to this original interview, as well as extensive interviews with 15 other amazing film music composers, you can find them in my new book, Scored to Death 2, More Conversations with Some of Horror's Greatest Composers. The new book, as well as its predecessor, Scored to Death, are available on Amazon from other book retailers or from me directly at scoredtodeath.com. For all things Scored to Death, you can follow me on social media at Scored to Death. And please check out my nostalgic movie podcast, Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. You can find Rob on Facebook at rob.dudecalogue. That's Rob.D-O-D-E-C-A-L-O-G-U-E. Thank you so much for listening to Scored to Death, the podcast. And please come back in two weeks for another in-depth conversation with one of horror's greatest composers. Mm -hmm.